fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Turned to the other and said, we don't know how lucky we are. And the Cuban stopped and said, how lucky you are. I had some place to escape to. And in that sentence, he told us the entire story. If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on earth. I'm saying that you cannot say that numbers collected at the employer's place of business reflect simply the employer's policies. Those, num those numbers reflect underlying conditions in the whole society, just as numbers collected at the hospital do not show you that people are sick because they're in the hospital. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. You're tuning in to The Unveiled Patriot with yours truly, Travis Masterbone, and this is combo number 28 with Victor Nieves. I pronounced that correctly. Yes, sir. You got that. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I've got ne a lot of people mispronounce it like knives and nevies but you got it victor I, nieves i was like i know it has to be nevs 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 and then you pronounce it i was like okay we got this working okay so who are you what do you do why should my audience care about you hey man those are some good questions well <laughs> i do a lot of stuff it seems like uh, you know every time i turn my head i'm always doing something else i'm always getting my uh, get my feet in, in a new pool of water, you know, so I'm an author. I wrote the book Conservative Prudence. It's available uh, on Amazon. I do content creation pretty much anywhere you can do content creation from Instagram to TikTok to YouTube. And then uh, here in the St. Louis area, which is where I'm from, I have a daily radio show from 5 to 6 p.m. So I am uh, I'm in it, man. I've been doing political commentary for maybe two and a half years now. I've been banned more times than I honestly remember and uh, just fighting the good fight, man. That's right. I could join the club on that. Uh, but yeah, you look young. You sound young. How old are you? Yes, sir. 23. I got the face of an infant child. It's a blessing <laughs> and a curse. Uh, but yeah, I'm 23 years old. Don't walk around Joe Biden. That's all I'm going to say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> He'll sniff me, man. I swear. Uh, so what got you interested in the politics? How long have you been doing this? I mean, it's pretty, uh, that's pretty cool. You got your own little radio show as well. 23. That's a young start. You know, what kind of sparked everything for you? Well, that's a, that's a tangent in and of itself. So growing up, um, I don't actually bring this up all that often, but growing up, my old man was in the Missouri state Senate. So from mm. a, a really young age, right. Whenever I was, I was like maybe five or six, when he first ran, he went in the house, did eight years in the house, switched over to the Senate. What's so his growing name? up, pardon. What's his name? Brian. Brian, Brian Nevis. Brian Nevis. Okay. He was a hardcore man. He was, he was a hardcore conservative. So growing up, I saw it all firsthand. You know, I saw just the vile hatred and the vitriol saw it from both sides, left and right, because there were establishment people that hated him because he didn't do what they wanted him to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and there were certainly Democrats that really don't, did not like him. And so I just grew up in that. I grew up in a really unique environment, a really unique world of seeing it all from a very young age. And I, you know, mo like most kids who grow up in that, you don't really like it, right? You don't really enjoy it. So naturally, there was this, this tendency for me not to really want to do that, not to be involved in that, not to necessarily care even. But from the time, you know, I got to maybe 10, 11, 12, that's when I started to realize kind of the gravity of it. That's when I started to piece together the importance of the situation, and having grown up at like Tea Party rallies and stuff like that, much to my chagrin, I knew a lot about the Constitution. I knew a lot about the founding fathers, about our system of government and how it was supposed to operate. 
And at a certain point in time in my life, maybe 11, 12 years old, I looked around and I was like, crap, right? This is actually a fight that needs to be fought. I mean, we're screwed if people don't stand up and push back against this. And so from that point forward, I was always very politically engaged. You know, I was the, I was the turd kid in like middle school and high school that like constantly was talking politics, but it was, it wasn't because I liked politics. It was because I cared like a lot. And, and I really do think in all seriousness, our country is on a precipice right now. And if we take one more step, we're going off a cliff. And if we fall, I don't know if we ever come back from that. So we really do. Our, our back is to the fence and we've got to push forward. The thing that really made me step out into the like public light, I guess, was when I first started making TikTok videos uh, following the 2020 election and some things I felt very strongly about, still do feel very strongly about that, uh, that happened in that election that we all watched at about 1 or 2 a.m. And so that's what really got me started. And man, ever since then, I just rode the wave. You never know what's coming next. I've just been uh, along for the ride, I guess. Yeah, I'm bumping into way too many people, uh, not only locally, but uh, on the internet, uh, people who are just absolutely changing the game and being a little bit more active after 2020. I'm a part of it. That's why I call the podcast the Unveiled Patriot. It, it was an unveiling. And then uh, I was watching a skit from you uh, that you posted about uh, not throwing the baby out with the bathwater in regards to the Constitution. I say that all the time. And so when I was trying to understand my politics, I didn't give a crap about it. I didn't want to just shit on the Constitution without at least learning the foundations. And, and I, I say the same thing all the time that you said verbatim. I say, I don't expect you to recite all the amendments word for word but at least have a foundational understanding of it before you just rip it to shreds. And so what do you, what do you say to people when you get into that little argument? And then how do you respond to people? Like you say, we're on the precipice. I deal with this a lot, a lot of moderates or left-wing people back from California where they say, oh, you're an alarmist. Uh, you're, you're overreacting. What do you say to these people? Well, it's the same, you know, and I appreciate that because it's the same basic argument that you see a lot when they say, oh, that's a slippery slope. And I think, mm -hmm. well, okay, sometimes the slippery slope is real, right? If you call me an alarmist, sometimes I'm setting the alarm because there's actually a fire, right? Sometimes yeah. it's actually a really big deal. So don't discredit the concerns of somebody else just because you may think that they're blown over or that they're blown out of proportion or something like that. Maybe evaluate and, and actually look at it You know, to those people, those liberals who may not think it's that big of a deal when you evaluate it in its context with history, with everything else, you realize we're not setting an alarm just for fun, right? There's actually a very real problem going on. And if we do, like I said, we're on that precipice. If we take one more step, we may never recover from that. So it is super, super important. Yeah. And so that's how I say it too. It's like, I feel like most people on the right who are genuine, they are sounding this alarm because they see the smoke. And it's at a point where I think the left is just refusing to even believe that there is smoke based on who is pulling the alarm. And I kind of think that's unfair, especially now, because it's just becoming so much more polarized. And so I stumbled across your podcast. It's called The Deep Dive. How long have you been doing that? Oh, that's been on. That's a recent development. That's one of the newer things. So I've got, I think, 10 or 11 uh, episodes of the podcast. Been doing one a week for, oh, I guess maybe two months now, three months now. Mm -hmm. And it's just audio? Yes, sir. Just audio. Uh, yeah, you, you seem pretty clear and you deliver very concisely. And I like listening to it. 
Um, I've been doing a lot of gun control episodes myself. And so I've been going down that rabbit hole. And this is kind of what unveiled me. I go to each and every contemporary issue and I'm just finding myself still siding with the right, still siding with the right. Cause I like evidence. I like statistics and I like some, you know, basic logic. I like to think, uh, but with the gun control episode, um, I asked the same question. Uh, Dr. Thomas Sowell does the same. And I put it all into an episode. And the main question is, does gun control work? And so I ask you, good sir, does gun control work? (laughs) No, no, short, (laughs) sweet and simple. No, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of people that turn to gun control in kind of a knee jerk reaction. And I understand to a certain extent, like I do kind of sympathize with them to a certain extent. Uh, Because our country, you know, when you look at the headlines and you hear the stories, it can appear that we have a problem. And listen, shooting up schools is a problem, right? That is a terrible, terrible thing. So people want a solution. They want a solution even if it doesn't work, though. That's the problem. So they're proposing these solutions to feel better. It's symbolism over substance. They want the, the symbol of feeling like they've done something that's going to fix the problem when they've never stepped back and thought about, hang on, does this actually work? Right. We have statistical evidence from the DOJ, the CDC. We have evidence that says, no, gun control fundamentally does not work. And then we have historical evidence that says every time gun control happens, it's not a good thing. Right. You go back to 1933 Germany. The the Jews were stripped of the right to bear arms the same year Dachau was formed, the first concentration camp. These aren't coincidences. Mm -hmm. Everything, every time the government starts to strip you of your arms, you should be very concerned. So not only does gun control not work, but there's a serious cost associated to gun control. And it's the cost that comes out of, you know, our rights. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so I stumbled upon an old Bernie Sanders tweet and it says, quote, It shouldn't matter what age you are. No one needs an AR-15 or any other assault weapon uh, designed to massacre people. When we had an assault weapons ban from 1994 to 2004, mass shootings went down 43%. After it expired, mass shootings tripled. End the filibuster, ban assault weapons, end quote. There's so much to dissect there that it just blew my mind. I was like, I can't believe I stumbled upon this right before I was actually interested in interviewing this guy. Um, But right off the bat, (laughs) you know, this verbiage, I go in depth in my debate breakdown about using assault weapons as the verbiage for the AR-15. Go into that and then let's jump into why uh, this 1994 assault weapons ban didn't really make a difference. Yeah, well, I think it's I think it's funny, right, when you see somebody like Senator Sanders, who comes out and and literally pulls figures out of his butt. I mean, these don't exist, right? If you go Mm -hmm. back and you actually look at the data on the 1994 uh, assault weapons ban, it did basically nothing. And the Department of Justice actually published a study, I believe it was in 2004, where they acknowledged that it was so little, uh, the effect that is, was so little that it was nearly immeasurable. And they had to acknowledge that if we reinstated the ban, it would do next to nothing. So little, in fact, they couldn't even measure the difference. So where Sanders is getting these numbers to heck if anybody knows, right? <laughs> and that's the beauty mm-hmm. of knowing that the legacy media has your back is that at the end of the day, they're not going to call him on it. So it's it, it, the, the burden of calling him on it 
falls on to what I guess you would consider alternative sources of media, like your podcast, like my podcast, and, and people out there who are willing to kind of independently fact check him and say, hang on, where did you get these numbers? Because it's cute. He doesn't give any, he, you know, he has no receipts. He doesn't bring any sources. He doesn't try and prove his claims whatsoever. He just kind of barfs it out there into the universe and hopes people listen. And the unfortunate reality is that a lot of people will, right? There will be people. I guarantee, I don't, I didn't see that exact tweet, but I guarantee it's got thousands of retweets. It's got thousands of people liking it. that just absorbed it at surface value, never thought to question anything whatsoever. And will now go and regurgitate that same lie that the 1994 civil rights uh, or 1994 um, assault weapons ban, excuse me, that it was effective when it just simply wasn't, you know, on a separate note, though, I think it's I think it is interesting because I'm a big fan of dissecting language, and I think that the left is a massive, massive uh, master. If we're being honest, they are masters of linguistics. They yes. change words. They will literally change definitions of words. And when you see like the term assault weapon, assault weapon, I, I love to ask people, okay, what does that mean? Let's define our terms so we can operate on a common understanding. Let's define our terms. So I would ask them, what does assault weapon mean? And they sit there like a cow looks at a new gate and they're like, well, it means a weapon that you assault somebody with. And I said, okay, so like a pencil could be an assault weapon. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. <laughs> okay. So you use that language because it's scary. Because it sounds exactly. intimidating. An assault weapon. Oh, my gosh. Why would anyone need an assault weapon? Well, I'll call it a defense weapon, right? <laughs> we yeah. can tag on our own descriptive terms all day long, but it doesn't make it any more true or false. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And that's what I was trying to really hit home on my debate breakdown. I don't know if you know Colion Noir or not, but he's a big time uh, gun advocate and he's very popular. And he used to be a spokesman for the NRA, but he did a debate with some anti-gun violence guy from Massachusetts, and uh, he was just obliterating him like, hey, it is not a military style weapon. It is not an assault rifle. Like people don't even know that AR means Armalite rifle. They still will use that verbiage. And uh, am I crazy? I bet you Bernie Sanders knows this, too. And he's just using it deceptively. And this is where I go back to the beginning conversation. My people from uh, California who are moderates are left and like, Travis, you're siding with the right so heavily. You're not giving room for their altruism or whatever. And I'm just like, eh, I don't know about that. I think they know better. I think they're leveraging the, the emotional string plucking of the tragedies. And uh, you said it perfectly in your episode. I forgot what you said, but it's so true. They, they stand on the bodies of children to push their political goals. And it's exactly what they do. And, and, you know, this is something I've tried to be as consistent as humanly possible on this. I don't talk about shootings in a political light until there's been at least several days, right? I don't, I don't piggyback the tragedy. That's the problem, right? The left will never let a perfectly good tragedy go to waste. The no. second that something happens, the bodies are still warm and they take to Twitter to make some sort of a political you know, agenda. They, they go and they want to shove this down everybody's throat. They want to wait uh, uh, or they don't want to wait. Excuse me. They want to hit while the iron's hot and they want to shove it down people's throat, tug on the heartstrings and make anyone who disagrees with them feel like a bad person, regardless of whether or not their proposals are actually going to work. It's exactly what they do, and they should be ashamed of it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And so when Bernie Sanders pulls this out, like it's 43% mass shootings, I I have to ask, like, how is he defining a mass shooting? Is it the four people or more? 
Is it inner city violence with handguns or is this all just AR-15 or whatever he's trying to get across? Like these things are important to me, the details and people don't want to, you know, dig into the details, especially after a tweet from a favored politician and the legacy media behind them. And so, yeah, so I believe you said, quote, 1976 to 94, 18 mass shootings per year, and then 95 to 2004 when the ban was in place, only 19 mass shootings each year. So we can't just contribute the ban to that, you know, that difference, right? And so uh, go into that a little bit. You know, what is it with these stats? How do they use them and leverage them to get what they want in regards to gun control? Yeah, that's statistics as boring as they are, are extremely influential, right? So when you have statistics and you misrepresent them, for one, I think that's like a massive problem. And and that's something that happens constantly, both sides. I'll be super transparent here. The right does it, the left does it. People manipulate statistics, they manipulate data, they mistake correlation for causation all Mm -hmm. the time. They ignore what's called intervening variables. And this is something uh, like, technically speaking, I have my degree in political science. And that's one of the things that I focused on while in college was how they do this, right? How do they gather these, these, you know, pieces of data, the statistics, how do they come up with like statistical significance and things like that. And the unfortunate reality that, that you realize when you study all that stuff in depth is that 90% of the statistics you see are a load of crap. They're little more than a representation of the goals of whoever conducted the study, whoever gathered the statistics. More often than not, they have some sort of an objective in mind. And so that's why it's important that you look. I mean, I, I believe it was the Justice Department that broke down those statistics and had to acknowledge, listen, when we account for intervening variables, when we account for population, when we account for all these different things, Turns out it didn't actually do much of anything. And that's what's important, right? The devil's in the details. When you actually break it down and you examine the intervening variables, you examine all of the different things, population growth, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, well, that's what matters, right? That's what matters a lot more than just tweeting out some arbitrary number with no source. Well, the devil's in the details. Absolutely. And so that's what I did with the countries. And so Dr. Thomas Sowell, that's where he absolutely just obliterates the whole thing. It's conveniently that they cherry pick the aha statistics. As soon as I find my answer, aha, done, no need to look any deeper, but they like to show or, or they like to say that it's an inverse relationship that if you have gun ownership increasing, that's going to be murder rate tag along with it. But if you see in other countries, uh, there's a whole different story on a bunch of different accounts. And so those intervening variables are always at play. Um, You were talking about the gun crime stats in 2020, uh, uh, 45,222 deaths from guns, and then over half of those suicide. Which is terrible. It's terrible. It's It's terrible. terrible. Uh, But that doesn't contribute to the so-called gun violence problem, right? That's, Mm -hmm. That's a different, that's a whole different problem in and of itself but they love to tack that in. That's why it's important to differentiate the two because they love to tack that in, which doubles the figure. I mean, you're talking roughly 40,000 gun-related deaths and half of them were suicides, Mm -hmm. right? That's an important piece of information that they oftentimes leave out. Yeah, oftentimes and always. And then with the homicides, uh, the majority of those with handguns. And so even though we know it's tragic that the AR-15 is a part of these mass shootings, not all of them, but 
um, it's unfortunate because they just conflate. And I didn't like that. I don't like that. And so it makes me wonder, why do they continue to do this? Yeah. Well, they have the information, right? They're not stupid. And that's, I think that really is kind of as a tangent here, an important realization for everyone uh, that very few people within high level politics are actually dumb, like in the sense that they're like low IQ. They're not dumb, right? They're not low IQ people. They're very smart. Um, but smart can be measured in a lot of ways. You can be smart, but still evil, right? You can use your intelligence in manipulative ways. I think that's exactly what they do. I, I think that they know better. I think that they see these statistics. They see the same things that, that you and I do, right? They're privy to the same information anyone else is. So they know for a fact that gun control does not work, yet they continue to push for it. So then you have to kind of speculate on what are their motives. And to me, I, I don't think that it's a, a very big leap to examine history, to understand human nature, and to assign a motive. Now, I could be wrong. I'll acknowledge that all day long. I might be wrong. But when I see people who have the information available, they, they have no excuse whatsoever, yet they continue to push for gun control. To me, it says they want to disarm me. And any government that wants to disarm me is probably about to do something for which I would want arms, right? <laughs> Whenever they specifically take your guns, coincidentally, tomorrow they put you on a boxcar. Or mm. when they take your guns, tomorrow you're turning and facing the wall at the gulag. Or, you know, the, every single time all throughout history, we see this repeating trend. So mm. that's whenever, like, people say you're an alarmist. Well, are you really, right? If I've seen this trend play out the exact same way all throughout history, and I recognize that the trend is about to repeat itself, I have every right to sound the alarm. I have every right to say, hang on. And I think a lot of people get confused here because they think that the Second Amendment is somehow about hunting or it's somehow about you know recreation or it's, it's things like that. And it actually irritates me when people on the right, in fact, will say, well, the AR-15 is a sporting rifle or it's, uh, you know, it's, it's used for like recreation and, and hunting and things like that, which sure, I mean, that is true. The AR-15 is the most popular sporting rifle in the world. But at the same time, that's not the function of the Second Amendment. Like we don't have the Second Amendment to go kill white-tailed deer or to go, you know, do some three-gun shoots on the weekend. The reason we have the Second Amendment is because our founding fathers had literally just fought off a tyrannical government, and mm -hmm. they very specifically wanted us to retain the exact same right. God forbid we would ever have to do so. But they understood history. They understood human nature. They understood, like, this is a, a little tidbit of, of history that I love. In 1775 was when the shot was, you know, the first shot of the Revolutionary War, the shot heard around the world, was mm -hmm. in 75, the battles of Lexington and Concord. Well, what the public education system seldom teaches is that Lexington and Concord were munitions depots. It's where the, the colonials had gunpowder and, and a lot of their rifles. Because back then, you know, you didn't just want to store 100 pounds of gunpowder in your house. You would have it in sort of a community munitions depot. Mm -hmm. The crown got wind that the colonials were starting to have a revolutionary spirit to fight off the tyranny. And so the crown decided, yeah, we're going to go take their guns because then we can subjugate them with essentially no resistance. So the founders got wind of that. Paul Revere, the British are coming and they whooped their butts, right? That was the start of the American Revolution before the declaration was ever even signed. 
And that that happened because they understood, right? And because that is literally the birth of our nation, they put pen to paper and made sure shall not be infringed was in our constitution in case, God forbid, we ever had to have the people of the United States fight off any enemy, foreign or domestic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And we, you only mentioned Waco and Ruby, Ruby Bridge, Ruby Ridge. Ruby yep. Ridge. So you only mentioned those two, but there's plenty of others. The Koreans in Koreatown, right? It's not just like tyranny, but also in cases of anarchy, but it could be local as well. So I use the example of uh, Tennessee, Athens, the Battle of Athens. That was Mm -hmm. was an example of an uprising against a tyrannical local government. But then also Hurricane Katrina, Uh, these these cops and this police force uh, during these times, it was very hectic. And so they literally just go in and take people's guns inside of their house and obliterating amendments. And so it's not like we have to look all the way back to even 1775 or over to Mao or Pol Pot. It doesn't matter. We have examples here where people can definitely use those guns, especially in a criminal element. Um, The stat that blew my mind, I already knew of it, but you mentioned it, right? We knew that we have about 12,000 right? And uh, homicides. But then what about the statistics for the people who use it for self-defense from 500,000 to about 3 million? That's important to me. That's important to you, I would assume, right? What happens? What happens to that number if we further restrict? Now these people don't have guns or it's harder to get guns or all outright don't have guns. How is that going to stop the criminals? Well, it's not, right? That's the unfortunate reality is if you have, for example, like your little old lady grandma who you love dearly, right? If she calls the cops, they're what, four minutes away if they're fast, like really fast? You know, it's a lot faster, a nine millimeter, right? There's a lot of ways to keep yourself safe or or the woman who's been victimized by maybe an ex-boyfriend or something like that. The cops might be four minutes away. A concealed carry is immediate. Right. We need to have the right to protect ourselves. And when you look at the fact that up to three million defensive uses of a firearm every year, that's mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that's a put a bow on it and send it off. That's that's, that's significant to me. It's very significant. It's it's insane to me. And so there's something in the left that isn't clicking or purposely isn't clicking because that should be rest. Rest your case uh, verbiage right there. I mean, in my opinion. And so it is the great equalizer. And so what else do we got here? Um, You mentioned uh, the per capita. (laughs) I think this is also a big timer, especially when we start comparing uh, the gun death rate to other countries. We are a massive country. I mean, Switzerland fits inside of Texas comfortably. And so people love cherry picking other countries, but they have to take into consideration how many people are in our country and on a state-by-state basis. We are the United States. And so go into your per capita and how it's not taken into account. Um, I uh, believe you mentioned in 2020, we have about 13.6 gun deaths per 100,000. And so go into all that and how you handle people coming at you with that stuff. 
Yeah. Well, people will oftentimes, you know, you're exactly correct. People will, you know, pretend that the United States is somehow super unique in the sense that we have gun deaths or that we're like the world leader in gun deaths that no one else can even remotely rival us on a per capita basis. Now, obviously, they don't like to bring in per capita. They like to just have the illusion that the United States is, you know, I guess, comparable directly on a one to one comparison to like Switzerland or some of these smaller countries. When we have 350 million people living here, of course, we're going to have more, you know, just how many the total tally of gun deaths is going to be higher. And our guns are outlandishly higher. So if there was an inverse relationship, we should be doubling, tripling everybody if we're taking into account those numbers. Go ahead. Yeah, but we're not right. That's the that's the reality that they don't like to accept is when you do break it down on a per capita basis, the United States is not the world leader. We're far from the world leader in per capita gun deaths. You said, and, and I think you're, you're correct there, it was about 13 per 100,000. There's countries out there with numbers as high as 17 or 18 gun mm-hmm. deaths per 100,000 countries all over the place. I mean, you've got some Middle Eastern countries, you've got countries in Africa, you've got all over the world, there are countries that blow us out of the water on per capita gun deaths. But obviously, that's not convenient information for the mainstream legacy media to talk about. Definitely not. I found an article 2019. You're actually a little off. El Salvador. So countries with highest rates of homicides per 100,000. El Salvador, 36.78. Venezuela, 33.27. Guatemala, 29. Colombia, 26. Brazil, 21. And Brazil, on the all-cause of gun death, um, they're almost 50,000 versus the U.S., 37,000. And yeah. they they have heavily restricted gun control policies in place in Brazil. We have to include them into the statistics. And so I believe in 2019, the US was only 12.21 per 100,000. Well, even in the United States, right? The great irony there is if you exclude just a handful of cities, that number drops to near, I mean, like near zero. Yes. I mean, absolutely right. I, I Absolutely right. I need people to understand this. Chicago alone, can hold some serious water. And then so when I look at Mexico too, people on the left will make this argument. I say, well, Mexico, they have very minimal gun ownership, but they have more gun deaths per capita versus the US. And they say, well, it's specific regions in Mexico and it's specifically the cartel. I'm like, yeah, we could say the same thing. Yeah, if we by your own logic real quick and let's (laughs) exclude LA, St. Louis, Chicago. See where we stand there, right? Like Baltimore. I mean, Baltimore, it, Detroit. I mean, yeah. And so it, it, this is where I started really, okay, who do I, I, I was neutral. I didn't really care. Apolitical Republicans catch a lot of heat. Democrats are always praised as the good guys, Obama. And then I look at the cities. I'm like, they all have been heavily ran by Democrats for years. Like this isn't just like a coincidence. I, I wrote, I lost one of my journals, but I went crazy and I was just Googling all previous mayors from yep. these major cities and their political party. Some of them date back 100 years of Democrat control. It's insane. Back when they were blatantly the bad guys. So I don't want to hear this 1960s switch bull crap. I absolutely obliterated that on my episode number two because I just had way too much information saying, I don't believe this. And well, so- it's funny, you know, if I can real quick, and I'm sure you totally diced that, right? That mm-hmm. that stupid argument that there's a, a the the party switch and that the bad guys then are actually the good night good guys now. It's a load of malarkey. 
And the funniest <laughs> thing is they throw it out there completely unsubstantiated. They never tell you any details on when, you know, they, maybe they'll like one guy will say, oh, it happened here. And then another guy will say, no, it actually happened over there. I'm thinking, okay. So the burden of proof is on you. You're making the claim now substantiate it. When did it happen? Why did it happen? And how can you prove that it happened? And they stand there and they're like, oh, <laughs> well, yeah. I don't know. And th therein lies the beauty of that. There was no such thing as this massive wide scale party switch. Mm -hmm. And if there was, show me how, show me when, show me where, show me why, but they never can. Yeah. So I had three things proven that I did not see the voting switch. Yep. We can argue that in the thirties, black voters voted more Democrat, but in order for a switch to occur, it would have to be both of them. Right. And then we fast forward, we did not even see any actual congressman. I think it was just uh, one guy. I forget his name. He's Joe Biden's buddy, a senator. I forget his name. Uh, but literally, that's it. One guy from the Senate, one guy from the House switched. That's yeah. not enough to substantiate that. And then the, the third thing is, oh, the rhetoric. The rhetoric changed. The rhetoric. Nixon and his Southern strategy. I'm like, I don't know about that because he didn't even win the Deep South. And then later on... Uh, a different Democrat just completely clean shop in the South. So it was just too many holes in the logic. So I don't go for it. But with this yeah. gun control stuff, I favor the right uh, tremendously. You know, what's crazy that I read from that 2019 article, uh, Greenland suicides per 100,000, 16.36. The U.S. was 7.12. That's what wow. they claim. I, that's kind of crazy. I don't know much about Greenland, but that's pretty significant. Well, I think uh, Greenland, just if I can speculate here, Greenland is the one that's actually like super icy. Like that's mm -hmm. the, the old funny switcheroo between Greenland and Iceland, I think. So Greenland oh, yeah, that's right. is, yep. is the one that's miserable. And, they just um, and so I ended up doing a, a study a while back on uh, specifically suicide rates and how they compare with firearm ownership and yada, yada. But one of the really interesting factors that's an intervening variable when it comes to suicide rates is I forget exactly what the breakdown and, and how they, you know, say it, but it's like hours of sunshine per year. And mm -hmm. as your hours of sunshine per year goes down, there is a statistically significant inverse relationship. Suicidality goes up, which is super. So maybe that was, that might play some sort of a, a role there up there, but it's not the firearms, right? That's the thing. Mm -hmm. it, there's all of these intervening variables that they like to ignore. They put the blinders on, they pretend those don't exist. And they're like, aha, let me cherry pick some information. But when you get the whole picture, it tells a much different story. Yeah, absolutely. And then, so when it comes to like red flag laws, and uh, I, I think people are under the illusion that we have zero background checks, zero laws on the books already. I think this is what really is in their mind. Uh, some guy made a comment about my Switzerland comparison, because I threw them in the stats that they have high gun ownership, but low murder rate with guns. And uh, he's not wrong in the sense that, yeah, they, it's military, like predominant, right? You, you join the military and you get a background check and then you could carry it as civilian, but it's also the respect they have for the gun. And, you know, they have a respect for their government more than we do. And that's rightfully so. And so how do you handle like the Switzerland comparison? I, I think they're a great example to show that they can have high gun ownership and low murder rates, but I wouldn't say it's gun control that makes it so. There's other intervening factors, such as the culture 
and how exactly they treat the firearm. Well, yeah, culture is always going to be a lot more important than an inanimate object, right? That's that's just the unfortunate reality for some people. They don't want to accept it, but culture is a massive thing. And I think that that's in part something that in America isn't very often talked about because it's a difficult, it's not an easy cookie cutter solution to say culture has a real problem. But a lot of times, like Switzerland's a perfect example of a culture where presumably people understand their firearms. There's a healthy respect and understanding of the firearms, because like you said, the vast majority of, of these people have firearms. They were in the military, blah, 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 blah. So they know it. It takes out that X factor of uncertainty. And as a, as a law-abiding gun owner and a, and a member of the whole Second Amendment community, that's part of the reason that I think that you know every gun owner should be very knowledgeable, right? Every gun owner should, of their own accord, know their gun, right? Don't pick up a gun if you don't know firearm safety. Don't be mm. handling firearms if you don't know what the heck you're doing or how they work or things like that. But when you do understand guns and you understand how they work, it takes that mystery out. It takes that allure of the, oh, you know, and I think that's super important. I think that that absolutely is a variable that would at least have to be considered when you're comparing a place like Switzerland to the United States. As in the United States, you've got a whole, a whole half of the country Literally, now I know this is probably generalizing to a, a certain extent, but they don't know anything about firearms. They don't know how they work. They don't know the laws that are already on the books about firearms. They, like you said, a lot of people are under the illusion you don't even have to have a background check right now when you obviously do. Anyone who's bought a gun knows you have to go through a legal process to get the gun. Yet a lot of, a lot of you know the gun control people literally don't know that. And I'm thinking, how are you going to spearhead an argument within this discussion when you know nothing about the subject, right? You don't know yep. anything about the existing gun laws or how guns work or all this kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, you're the person who's dangerous with a firearm because you don't know anything about it. You're afraid of it. You don't have a healthy respect of it. You have a fear of it. So of mm -hmm. course you're going to want to do away with it because you don't understand it and you're afraid of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I've been just recently shooting again. I shot when I was a kid with my dad, but not nearly as much as I have been since I've been out here now. And everyone is very serious, professional. Safety is the number one priority when you're in there. It's like a code that you just walk into and you feel it. These aren't the people that we need to be punishing. No. And I just tell people, go look at all these mass shooters. Go look at pictures of them. Do you think they look like they're in their right mind? No. And can we look at other factors? This, this media portrayal of them, the idea of copycat um, mass shooting. I, I really do think this plays a huge factor. And especially with technology and depression and just where we're going in general with our society and schools, um, you know, what is your thoughts on all of that I just said in regards to the like specifically categorizing these mass shooters and then all these people want to conflate all law abiding gun owners with them? Yeah, well, the answer to bad people doing bad things is never to violate the rights of the innocent. And you're absolutely correct. There are two very different groups. You've got your law-abiding, responsible gun owners who are not causing a problem whatsoever. And in fact, on multiple occasions have stopped bad people from doing bad things. I mean, the CDC says it could be 3 million times a year, but we've got the noteworthy cases out of Texas at the church shooting. It goes on and on. Those aren't isolated examples. They happen quite often. But there's two very different groups here. And I think there may be some merit 
Uh, you mentioned real quick there, you mentioned like media portrayal and the copycat effect. And, you know, I, I think it's Jordan Peterson does an interesting talk on that. And he feels extremely strongly from a, a psychologist's perspective that we should not name these people. Like when it's in the media, we shouldn't give them any glory, any, you know, acknowledgement because in their mind, I know it's not glory, but it's, it's glory in their mind. It, it's attention. So all of the people who dis, you know, display these, these, characteristics of suicidality they imagine themselves after the fact it's like they imagine themselves as a third party viewer of the aftermath of their grand event rather whether it's a suicide or a shooting or things like that and they imagine everyone's going to be talking about me everyone's going to be talking about the way that i did this i'm going to be in the news for all of this time and that's you know peterson breaks that down infinitely better than i ever could but I think there's some merit uh, to not covering or at least changing the coverage, maybe not to not cover it, but to really fundamentally change the way that we cover these mass shootings and to stop putting their name on every, you know, you turn on the, the cable news and there's that scroll going on that says Joe Blow shot up a school. And it's like, well, maybe we don't do that. Maybe we rearrange certain things. And that's not to say I'm not going to blame the media for the existence of school shootings, but it's reasonable to question whether or not their coverage may be contributing to these copycat style events. Because it does seem like when one happens, a bunch happen. Like you've got one, and this is anecdotal, observational, sure. But when you see these shootings, it's like they come and go in waves. They, they all of a sudden, you have a bunch of them back to back. And it's like they all just spark each other off. And then it dies out for a minute. And then boom, all of a sudden, we see this, this rolling trend. Maybe there's something to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm just trying to, because there's a lot of intervening factors that maybe we don't even know yet. And so I just... I just really try to open up the playing field and see what could potentially be the cause of this. Cause we've had guns for years, mass shootings have ticked up yep. around here. So how can we blame the guns when we've had it through this whole time frame? Um, yeah. And we haven't seen it uh, as much. And so this is where I, I really just have to dig a little bit deeper and I encourage people to dig a little bit deeper. Um, but yeah. So with the Uvalde, and people, I, I disagree with the left. I don't see why we can't put a little bit more priority in securing schools. I don't see why that's such a crazy idea. Um, I, I forget which state passed it, but they allowed, I think it might've been Ohio or something, where a teacher can get 24 hours of training before they bring a gun. They could actually bring a gun onto the campus and everyone's like 24 hours that's ridiculous just one day oh, they're going to be shooting anything and kids are going to get into it i'm like 24 hours is a very decent amount of time if we're talking hour by hour they could learn how to use it responsibly and yeah. i could even say even less than that they can have at least a better idea no one's asking them to be uh you know mission impossible agents or soldiers jason Bourne. <laughs> jason Bourne up in there no I mean, better than a sacrificial lamb. No one's asking to be in the predicament where we have to or they have to hide and scurry from a shooter that comes onto the campus. So you might as well be able to pop them if you can. I don't see a problem with that. No, I don't see. You know, in fact, my state of Missouri uh, actually passed legislation a couple of years back before, you know, Uvalde and, and some of the other ones, but obviously following some of the other shootings. 
my state passed legislation. It's actually legal here in the state of Missouri for teachers to have a firearm on them. They can they can conceal carry in the classroom. Now, that's not to say every teacher does, but at least it gives them the opportunity. If you're someone who's competent with a firearm and, you know, there might be an extra step along the way to be like, hey, yeah, you know, I, I'm competent with this. Uh, if you're going to be in the school, right, because there's reasonable time, place and or whatever or sensitive, that's what they call it. The court calls it sensitive place restrictions, which is why you can outlaw firearms on certain places like in a, you know, a hospital church or a school. And so anyways, if, if maybe these teachers do a course or a class with the local sheriff's department or something like that, just to prove some level of competency, I see no problem whatsoever in allowing a teacher to be armed. I mean, you, you imagine in all of these horrible circumstances, as bad as they are, right, as, as awful as they will always be, if you imagine someone trying to walk into a schoolroom and the teacher and the kids are all huddled up in the corner completely defenseless, that's a terrible circumstance. But if now you give the teacher a 12-gauge shotgun and they're standing there pointing it at that door, he ain't getting through that door. I'm just telling you the truth. He's not getting through that door. Is it unfortunate that we would have to live in a world where teachers would have to consider that? That's terrible, right? The existence of evil is horrible, but why would we remain defenseless? Why wouldn't we protect our schools the same way we protect everything else of value? Give them some armed guards or allow the teachers to protect themselves and their students. I know teachers from around here, at least. That's not to say everywhere in the world follows suit, but I know teachers from, from where I'm at they would absolutely, if somebody was coming through a door and they had a 12-gauge shotgun, it's not even that hard to aim. <laughs> you know, yeah. Just pull the dang trigger and the dude's done, right? Correct. And if that happens once or twice, soft targets are, there's a reason they're called soft targets. If you know, if you harden them up a little bit, right, you beef up security and you allow these, these kids to be protected in the same way we protect everything else of value, I would wager these people will find a new target. Right. You don't see, uh, you know, porcupines getting attacked in the wild very often. It's because they're not an easy target. Right. Mm -hmm. You make you you harden the schools a little bit from a defensive perspective. And, yeah, you're going to see a change. Yeah. And it could be a lot of different things that you could add to that. And um, I think if we're doing a bunch of outlandish spending already, we might as well try to allocate it there. And so you're this is a perfect segue into the gun free zones, like go into that. Well, you do see statistically a lot of gun crime happens in gun-free zones. A, a lot, like the majority of all of these crimes, if you're talking about public places, if they're a gun-free zone, yes, they are absolutely targeted way more often than not. And it makes perfect sense. I mean, again, I love the porcupine comparison. Nothing attacks a porcupine. There are very, very few things that go after a porcupine because it's defending itself. It has the capacity to defend itself. If you put up a big sticker on your front door that says, I have no weapons, I have no way to defend myself, and I'm a robber, I'm probably going to rob you, right? <laughs> I'm probably going to say, oh, well, do I rob the NRA member over there or do I rob the guy who has a big giant sign that says I'm completely defenseless? I don't know. Hard pick, right? It's really not that hard of a choice. So it makes perfect sense. And it's just totally logical, right? It's just you don't have to overcomplicate over things. It's logical. It makes perfect sense why a soft target would be attacked rather than a hard target for the same reason porcupines aren't attacked in the wild. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this was the Crime Prevention Research Center's tracking of mass shootings. Um, 
the mass shootings that occur in gun-free zones, January 1998 to December 2015, 96.2% of all mass shootings occur in gun-free zones. Again, this is just another insane stat that should just rest the case, but doesn't. And also interesting to note, now we have the Highland Park shooting. Uh, we can get into this real quick. I mean, Highland Park, I would assume, has some restrictions, especially Chicago. That same weekend, we saw an even bigger mass shooting with more injured, more dead, less media attention. But Highland Park, on the other hand, got its attention. I mean, what's your thoughts on that event? And uh, what's your thoughts even more so about, you know, making these gun-free zones uh not gun-free zones that is actually more dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, like you said, that statistic, 96%, it's crazy. That's the kind of thing that you hear and you're like, well, wow, you know, this is common sense. Not only is it common sense, but it's backed up by the data, right? The actual statistical information backs it up. And, you know, it's terrible. It's an absolute shame, but Chicago is, is ripe with gun violence. It's like every Monday, if you go on to uh, you know, Yahoo News or something like that, and you're just scrolling through, you'll see the heartbreaking headlines that say 32 shot this weekend in Chicago, 45 shot this weekend in Chicago. And Chicago, we all know, has some of the hardest gun control laws in the entire country, yet we still see these mass shootings. We still see gang violence. We still see all of this kind of stuff. And it's, oh, I don't know, I guess the gun-free zone didn't really work that well. And, you know, the go-to response that I hear from people uh, that are against firearms, the go-to response from the gun control lobby is, well, that doesn't, the, the Chicago gun control laws don't work uh, simply because the guns are coming from other places. And I say, mm -hmm. okay, even right. if that's true, let's assume that's totally true. All of the guns in Chicago are coming from other places, which of course, there's not that many firearm manufacturers in Chicago. They have to be coming from somewhere else. But anyways, if all of these guns are being brought in from somewhere else, apply that logic consistently, right? If you're going to say, well, let's increase these gun-free zones. Are you for locking down our southern border where a tremendous number of firearms are crossing illegally every single day? Are you for that? And it's that's the problem, right? If you say, well, these gun control measures aren't working because guns are coming in from other places, that will always happen, right? That will literally always happen, even if you put it to a national level. If you applied Chicago's gun laws to the entire country, guess what they would do? They would move the goalpost. And they would once again say, well, these gun control measures aren't working because the guns are coming from XYZ location. Yeah. And I'm like, well, yes, congratulations. You see the problem in your own logic. Yeah. And so it's where I come into play on that. I'm like, okay, say these, you're so gung ho about red flag laws, but they didn't even flag this Uvalde shooter and he yeah, had yeah. plenty of symptoms. So it didn't work and it's unconstitutional. Uh, but then also, let's just say, okay, they're getting guns legally, and they bring it on over, they're still going to a soft target, right? They're yep. still taking it to a soft target. And when it comes to inner city violence, most of that is illegal guns. Like, we, I just don't understand how the laws are going to prevent criminals and then illegal guns from occurring. So let's go to your Chicago gun control across the entire country. Now, if illegal guns are being used for mass shootings, what do you do then? What's your next step? You might as well have taken that step first before disarming the law abiding. 
Yeah, no, they, they've got no answer for that, right? It just simply doesn't work. And there are already, you know, I don't even remember the, I think it's a two to one ratio off the top of my head. There's, there's around two guns per American citizen. We have so many guns that are out there right now. Uh, unless I'm, you know, not aware of it, there's no magic wand that we can just wave in the air to make all of those guns just vanish all of a sudden. They're here. They're here to stay. So if you think banning them all overnight is going to result, you know, if, like I said, if we apply the Chicago gun laws, if you think all of these, you know, AR-15s and AK-47 style rifles and all of the different rifles that would fit their arbitrary assault weapons term, if you think they're all just going to vanish, well, you're wrong, right? If you happen to be one of those liberals who thinks we can just do away with them, how do you propose doing that? Right. How are we going to get all of these guns, which would suddenly become illegal guns because, you know, they would now meet that legal requirement to be considered illegal. What, what, how are we going to get rid of those? Where are they going to go? Right. That's kind of a uniquely American thing because we have so many guns. But where on earth would they go? Right. They would just continue to be illegal, which means criminals would have access to a tremendous number of illegal guns. And by definition of a criminal, it's someone who doesn't follow the law. So why would they look at this new law and be like, oh, darn it. <laughs> like, oh, I guess I got to pack it up. Yeah, it's so wild. And um, honestly, and, and this, it's just never going to work out in the way that they think. And uh, they refer to England all the time. They don't ever consider how crime and burglaries rise. And so it's this government interventionist state that just really takes hold in the 20th century and so outright taking guns away in england their burglaries and crime increase exponentially and again i refer back to our 500,000 to 300 uh, 3 million who use it to defend themselves how does that get screwed with if we apply the chicago universal us gun control law example and that's all i give a damn about really and i think it's just the risk reverse reward is lacking and none other than michael moore i don't know if you saw that meme i sent you the michael moore proposed 28th amendment and i just wanted to dissect this before i let you go here repeals and replaces second amendment altogether all righty mandatory firearm registration. So this is basically like that universal registration thing. And Colion Noir goes into this and he's just like, how are you going to operate that without a database where everyone has to put in what they have, when they got it, et cetera. And then how are you going to enforce that? And should we be dangerous? Like, I mean, should we be um, cautious of the dangers that this could potentially lead to? Go into this cool. part before we go into the others. Real, real quick here. Yeah. So it was maybe what, two and a half weeks ago to date that California accidentally released the entire list of all of the gun owners in the state. Oh, yeah. Since I read about that. You can't trust the government to, to have a list like this because the government is incompetent and they can't keep the list to themselves for and starters. The, and it's very inefficient. I can't expect this universal registry to be working optimally. If you've ever been to the DMV or experienced the post office, let alone all the other garbage governmental programs, don't even get me started on the Department of Education. But no, 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 Michael Moore, this is nonsense. Uh, well, just, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. It's funny too. So um, I have read Michael Moore's uh, proposed 28th Amendment. And the funniest <laughs> language I found in that 
which if we're real quick tangent, real quick rabbit trail here, this is an attention get from Michael Moore. And I guess from a certain perspective, congratulations, you got your three minutes of fame. We're talking about it. Forget about you by tomorrow, right? Like yeah, Michael Moore is, he's yesterday's news. Nobody yeah, cares about him. We're talking soon. about it right now. So good for him. He, he did it. <laughs> yeah. But I'll still forget about it by tomorrow. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so, me too. I'm going to delete anyways, it. In section one of his proposed 28th Amendment, he includes um, the inalienable right to be kept safe from, uh, I think, gun violence or something like that, and the inalienable right not to be afraid. Literally, I, you know, I don't have it pulled up in front of me, but he literally includes in section one of his proposed 28th Amendment, there's language in there that says it's an inalienable right not to fear gun violence. So I'm thinking, how is the government, if you're, if you want me to take this seriously, how, do you, how are you expecting the government to enforce that, that no one should fear anything? Are you going to like a life alert button? I'm afraid, I'm afraid. And the government's going to show up and give you a blanket. Like, what do you, what is that? Just start blowing the whistle, I guess. Ridiculous. And then he says strict vetting process again, under the assumption that we don't have a background checks or anything in general, but I would ask him, all right, so what are we doing now? Hopefully, you know, we have background checks now, but what are we doing now that isn't as strict in your vetting process? What are you going to do? Let me guess, go strip anyone who voted for Trump. I, I just have a funny feeling <laughs> you might be a little bit more politically sensitive to that. And w wouldn't the government be? Oh, 100%. You already, you, see know, like, you already see it with our censorship. Yeah, no joke. And there's something else that I, I like to throw out there that I think most people don't really consider. And it's the unintended consequence of stricter background checks. And not just background checks, but background checks that include like a mental health evaluation. And, and some people are like, well, that's common sense. To a certain extent, I can understand that argument. But the problem I see is that if you have a restriction on gun ownership that says people suffering from, you know, whatever mental health issue cannot have access to the Second Amendment, they can't have access to their rights. What I worry about is that that's going to prevent people from seeking the help that they need, right? If you say anyone who has been diagnosed with clinical depression cannot have a firearm, well, then someone like me is not going to go to the doctor and get diagnosed with clinical depression, is not going to get the help that they desperately need because they don't want to be treated like a second-class citizen and be stripped of their rights, especially veterans. You think of the veteran community. There's a lot of with PTSD, be a disqualifying issue for people not to be able to get a firearm, there's already an issue within the, the veteran community of getting people to go and, and seek the help that they desperately need, right? So then you tack on this idea that if they get the help that they need, they'll no longer have access to their rights. Are they going to do it? No, of course not. So now you just compound the mental health issue because you've penalized people for getting help. And I'm thinking, is nobody thinking through the solutions that we're proposing out here or... or like there are unintended consequences of legislation. That's why we don't just shove things through. Like in the case of that, uh, the Senate piece of legislation that was shoved through in an hour. No one even had the chance to read it, much less consider unintended consequences. That's a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was 80 pages long. That stuff blows my mind. They've done that with plenty of other bills too. Um, but back to the, the vetting, also, like, okay, say they don't want to get help, say they get the gun first and then go get the help, 
right? Now they still have a gun. You just gave them more whole, uh, you know, more uh, stuff to go through before getting it. But then also, if someone someone could get a gun through their vetting process and then later down the road snap for whatever reason and can still do the atrocious things that we have been seeing lately, there's still the capability of that. And so I don't see how the red flag laws really do or the vetting process really do what they say they're going to do. It's the unintended consequences for sure. And so, uh, yeah, he goes into written approval from family members and spouses, ex coworkers, neighbors, like that seems really slippery, a one month waiting period, minimum age, 25 years old, and then all banning of semi-automatic guns, just destroy whatever you feel like you can destroy there. And uh, yeah. I'll let you go in a minute. Well, the I mean, semi-auto guns, again, it's probably indicative of the fact that he doesn't know much about guns because the vast majority of guns are semi-automatic. Literally. I mean, excluding like your double action revolvers, your pump shotguns and your bolt actions, everything is going to be, a, a you know, semi-automatic. But something that stood out there was the 30 day wait. It's another unintended consequence that maybe people don't talk about very often is when you when you impose this 30 day waiting period. Again, kind of tugs on the heartstrings, but imagine that you've got somebody who is a sexual assault victim, somebody who has been molested or raped by maybe an ex-boyfriend. And now you tell this woman who desperately wants to protect herself, you tell her, hang on, wait 30 days. She needs protected today. She needs protection immediately. She doesn't need to be waiting 30 days so that she can exercise her right to protect herself from some sort of a pedophile or a molester or a rapist. Or she whatever. needs that today. Right. So why would we impose a 30 day, 30 days of her being a victim, 30 days of her not being able to defend herself? Shut up, Michael Moore. Don't tell me that crap about 30 day waiting period. And why 30 days? It's such an yeah. arbitrary a month. This will solve everything. A bunch of nonsense. And then, uh, yeah, restricting ammo and then the semi-automatic thing. Again, these people really think that they're just ramboing, holding on to the trigger, just spraying away on these campuses again well, it's semi-fully automatic i mean that's it's a very semi, dangerous it's, thing it's very semi-fully automatic oh my god but this is the world we live in i really hope people were paying attention please plug your stuff real quick here where can people find you um you know podcast radio show for the locals uh well, whatever you got plug it and hopefully the people will follow along my select audience <laughs> <laughs> well, man, I appreciate that. And I appreciate everybody for uh, for tuning in. I appreciate you having me. So anywhere, pretty much on social media, YouTube, just search my name, Victor Nieves. TikTok, I won't even bother sending you there because odds are I won't be there for much longer. They're going to ban me anyway. By tomorrow. Frivolous. Uh, Instagram, if you search the Victor Nieves show with no spaces, slashes or dashes, just the Victor Nieves show, you will find me. Uh, just a real quick disclaimer. You'll have to type the whole thing out because Instagram has me somewhat shadow banned. And unless you type the whole thing out, it won't pop up. So the Victor Nieves show, um, or you can go to thegoons.locals.com. That's my locals page. Um, the podcast is The Deep Dive with Victor Nieves. That's available on pretty much every single podcasting platform, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, you name it. So it's been a pleasure, man. I thank you for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Victor Nieves, that's N-I-E-V-E-S. And he is the man, youngin, doing it. Appreciate you coming on, good sir. And hopefully you could come back and tuning out the Unveiled Patriot. Mm -hmm.